Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere, the world's only podcast devoted solely to Alice in Wonderland and her creator, Lewis Carroll. We just did two big episodes on Lewis Carroll's influence on the Beatles. So today we're going to do something completely different. We're going to talk about Lewis Carroll's influence on the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. I kid. No more Beatle talk. For now. Today we are going to read an obituary of Lewis Carroll, published in The Strand magazine in 1898 and written by Beatrice Hatch. Actually, we're only going to read the first half of it because it is really freaking long, so I'm dividing it into two episodes. Conveniently, the obituary is already pretty much divided into two halves. The first half is mostly a fact-based account of the life of Charles Ludwig Dodson, more popularly known as Lewis Carroll. And the second half is a first-hand account of what it was like to be one of Lewis Carroll's child friends. Beatrice tells us exactly what an evening spent at Mr. Dodson's quarters entailed. So I'm sure you will all want to tune into part two to hear that. Who was Beatrice Hatch? You are no doubt asking. Beatrice and her sisters Evelyn and Ethel Hatch were child friends of Lewis Carroll's. Child friend meaning... When they were children, they were friends of the adult Lewis Carroll. The girls were born after the publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1865, so Lewis Carroll was in his late 30s, early 40s when he befriended them. The girls lived in the neighborhood. Their father was Edwin Hatch, a theologian blessed with the strangest natural hair I've ever seen, if you'd like to Google some pictures of him. He held various positions at Oxford, where Lewis Carroll lived and worked as well. The girl's mother was Evelyn Hatch, Sr. Factual info on mom is scarce, but we do know that she had no problem whatsoever with Lewis Carroll befriending her daughters. We know this because many letters between mom and Lewis Carroll survive. She would allow her daughters on unsupervised visits to Lewis Carroll's quarters, either alone or together. She consented to their being photographed by him quite often, including without clothing. The Hatch sisters remained friends with Lewis Carroll well into their own adulthood. They were upper-middle-class ladies who were somewhat accomplished. Ethel became an artist. Evelyn wrote some books. I've mentioned before that she edited a book of letters from Lewis Carroll and his child friends in 1933. Beatrice became a teacher. In fact, Lewis Carroll visited Beatrice's classroom and told the kids stories up until a few years before his death. Interesting note. At least, it was to me. I don't believe any of the three Hatch girls ever got married, which seems kind of strange. If anyone knows otherwise, please correct me via social media or an email, heather at aliceseverywhere.com. But they are always referred to by their maiden name, Hatch. Unlike, say, Alice Little, when referred to as an adult, she's Alice Little Hargreaves, because that was her married name. And I'm not giving you a ton of info on the lives of the Hatch girls, because every website I found including Wikipedia, was so rife with factual errors that I didn't trust it for any new info. And every book on Lewis Carroll that I own kind of talks about the Hatch Girls like we should all be familiar with them already. You know, the Hatches. Everybody knows everything about the Hatches. Anywho, when Charles Ludwig Dodson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, died in January 1898 at the age of 65 of a bronchial infection, There were, of course, obituaries written throughout the world for this creator of one of the most beloved children's books of all time. In my opinion, none give you as complete a picture of the man than the one written by Beatrice Hatch in The Strand magazine. 
And make no mistake, it's biased. This is one woman's opinion. But it's a woman who knew Lewis Carroll since she was a toddler, really, since she had memory, up until her early 30s when he died. So it's a fascinating snapshot of what it was really like to be one of Lewis Carroll's child friends. And also, useful for us, it starts with a short, fact-based account of Lewis Carroll's life. And that is useful because I've never done that for you. I've never given you a short bio. I've struggled with how to do that in a 20 to 30 minute podcast, what's imperative to include, what I can leave out. So I've mostly let Lewis Carroll's own words speak for him. But Ms. Hatch includes a tidy little summary of basic facts, which I appreciate. Now this article is very, very long, so I'm going to skip a few things. Promise I won't leave anything juicy out, but things like when she quotes Lewis Carroll's rules about letter writing for a few pages, I will skip over that as we've already discussed it at length here on this podcast. Oh, and if I sound a little uncertain, or maybe like I'm straining with the words, it's because I am. Uh, I visited the Cassidy Collection at USC to find this obituary, and I took pictures of every page with my phone, and when I blew them up on my computer, they were quite fuzzy indeed. Fuzzy and hard to read. I would make a very bad spy. That's all spies do, right? They take pictures of documents in a clandestine fashion. I'm pretty sure that's all they do. Hey, without further ado, from the Strand Magazine, this is Lewis Carroll, parenthetically Charles Ludwidge Dodson, by Beatrice Hatch. The Reverend Charles Ludwidge Dodson died at Guildford on January 14, 1898. When that sad announcement was made to the world on the morning of the 15th, hundreds of children knew and felt that they had lost a friend. Not only those to whom Mr. Dodson had been a living personal reality, but also the countless number in different parts of the world who knew him as Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland. The world at large will think of him merely in the latter connection, as the writer of those inimitable books of wit and humor. Others will call to mind the somewhat prim college Don, the hard-working mathematician living in retirement in his corner of Tom Quad, Christ Church. But those of us who knew him best remember him as the kind and loving friend who contributed so much to the happiness of our lives, and whom we shall truly mourn as one of the best of men. Charles Ludwidge Dodson, the son of the Reverend Charles Dodson, Archdeacon of Richmond, was born at Daresbury Parsonage, Cheshire, on January 27, 1832, and it was there that he spent the first years of his childhood, afterwards removing to Croft Rectory, Yorkshire. He was a studious boy from his earliest years, yet to his three brothers and seven sisters, Charles gave constant amusement by his witty and original remarks. It was to him that they looked for leadership in their youthful attempts at writing, and in the little private magazines with the children got up amongst themselves. Charles would contribute by far the largest share, adorning the stories which he wrote with illustrations from his own pen. He was sent to school at Richmond, Yorkshire. From there he went to Rugby and to Christ Church, Oxford. Mathematics were, then, as always, Mr. Dodson's chief study. In 1854 he took a first class in that subject, and in 1855 he was appointed mathematical lecturer at Christ Church, which post he held until 1881. Several works were published by him on algebra, trigonometry, logic, etc., which are proof of his industry and originality. In 1861, Mr. Dotson was made a senior student, i.e. a fellow, of his college, and he remained at Christ Church in that capacity until his death. He had also been ordained deacon in the Church of England in the year 1861, but he never took priest's orders. 
These are a few bare facts of Mr. Dotson's history, which many will have read for themselves in the newspaper accounts. But it is from a child friend's point of view that I wish to make a sketch of him, and to show something of what the real man was, not as lecturer, mathematician, or college don, but as a friend. There are many who could draw a similar picture of him, for never, surely, did any man make more friends among children than he did during the earlier and middle parts of his life. Latterly, however, he had not increased his acquaintance much, but the child friends of past years were still honored by the old title, even though childhood had long been left in the far distance. Boys did not share this honor, nor babies. They were only tolerated for their sisters' sakes. But girls, little and big, were admitted into friendship at once. Sometimes on the seashore, sometimes in a railway carriage, the magnetic power began, and in many cases continued for life. It was impossible for Mr. Dodson to pass by the smallest opportunity of speaking to a child, and his winning manner gained the hearts, and generally the tongues, of all whom he met. It was this love for children, combined with his inventive faculty, that led him to tell that most original story, which afterwards developed into Alice in Wonderland, of worldwide fame. His audience consisted of the little daughters of Dean Little, who lived then in the opposite corner of the great quadrangle of Christ Church, and from one of them Mr. Dotson borrowed the name to give to the heroine of these marvelous adventures. His friends begged him to write it down, and we may today see the published facsimile of the author's original manuscript with his own illustrations. In that volume also appears the Easter greeting to every child who loves Alice, a letter written in the Easter of 1876 which shows us a beautiful side of Lewis Carroll's mind. Alice in Wonderland, in its present form, was published in 1865, and never has any book attained to a greater popularity. It was followed in 1872 by Through the Looking Glass, which is as well known as its predecessor. In 1876 appeared the long poem, or rather, Agony in Eight Fits, called The Hunting of the Snark. Snark being, as he told us, the portmanteau word for snail and shark. In other poetry, he has given us Phantasmagoria and other poems, 1870, among the best of which was Hiawatha's Photography and A Sea Dirge and Rhyme and Reason, which came out in 1883. Besides the puzzle book of doublets and game of logic and other small works, Mr. Dotson enlarged a fairy story of his that had appeared in Aunt Judy's magazine in 1867 as Bruno's Revenge into the two big volumes of Sylvie and Bruno, which in its double story, so curiously interwoven, contains such a mixture of the sublime and the ridiculous. The dedicatory verses at the beginning of some of these volumes are worth notice for the ingenious way in which he has worked in the name of his girl friend to whom the book is inscribed. In those in The Hunting of the Snark and in Sylvie and Bruno, the first letter of each line, taken in succession, spell out the girl's name, and in the verse at the beginning of Sylvie and Bruno concluded, the result is obtained by taking the third letter in each line. Puzzles and problems of all sorts were a delight to Mr. Dodson. Many a sleepless night was occupied by what he called a pillow problem. In fact, his mathematical mind seemed to be always at work on something of the kind, and he loved to discuss and argue a point connected with his logic, if he could but find a willing listener. Sometimes, while paying an afternoon call, he would borrow scraps of paper and leave neat little diagrams or word puzzles to be worked out by his friends. It may be interesting to some who do not know Mr. Dotson's poetical charade to see the accompanying verses, with two rough drawings by himself. Of late years, all Mr. Dotson's time had been given to his work on symbolic logic, of which Part 1 was published in February 1896, and Parts 2 and 3 were still in process of completion when the unexpected end came. 
In his estimation, logic was a most important study for everyone. No pains were spared to make it clear and interesting to those who would but consent to learn of him, either in a class that he begged to be allowed to hold in a school or college, or to a single individual girl who showed the smallest inclination to profit by his instructions. He never spared himself in any detail. Everything was done in the neatest and most methodical manner. The arrangement of his papers, the classification of his photographs, the order of his books, the lists and registers that he kept about everything imaginable, all this betokened his well-ordered mind. Okay, then, here's where she goes on and describes in great detail and quotes the eight or nine wise words about letter writing, so we're going to skip over that. Another register contained a list of every menu supplied to every guest who dined at Mr. Dodson's table. This sounds like the doing of an epicure, but Mr. Dodson was not that far from it. His dinners were simple enough, and never of more than two courses, but everything he did must be done in the most perfect manner possible, and the same care and attention would be given to other people's affairs, if in any way he could assist or give them pleasure. If he took you up to London to see a play at the theatre, you were no sooner seated in the railway carriage than a game was produced from his bag, and all occupants of the compartment were invited to join in, playing a kind of halma, or drafts, of his own invention, on the little wooden board that had been specifically made at his design for railway use, with men warranted not to tumble down because they fitted into little holes in the board and the rest of those happy days spent with him were remarkable for the consideration that was shown for your comfort and happiness. To be continued. How did Mr. Carroll ensure your comfort and happiness? You're going to have to wait until next time to find out. We'll also get a blow-by-blow account of what a visit to Mr. Carroll's abode was like. The suspense. That was a good little bio, wasn't it? We heard about Lewis Carroll's early days, his academic and professional life, we got a bibliography of his major works, and we got a preview of coming attractions in terms of what it was like to be a child friend. It was interesting to me to hear Beatrice talk about the teaching skills of Charles Dodson. She really made it sound like he was full of energy and had ways of making math a, a delight, really, to those he was instructing. Now this was Beatrice's experience, and that's great. There is evidence to suggest that uh, Teaching or tutoring one-on-one -on -one was definitely his forte, as opposed to teaching a lecture hall full of students. Those students at Christ Church were not always as complimentary as Beatrice. A lot of them categorized him as kind of a bore. The very recently departed Morton Cohen reports in Lewis Carroll of Biography that Lewis Carroll's first lecture at Christ Church was somewhat disastrous as he sent a notice to 60 students and only 23 showed up. Not too terribly long afterwards, when he had a little more experience under his belt, Lewis Carroll wrote in his diary that, I am weary of lecturing and discouraged. It is thankless, uphill work, goading unwilling men to learning they have no taste for, to the inevitable neglect of others who really want to get on. End quote. I feel like I can see all the teachers listening right now, nodding their heads in agreement with our friend Elsie. There are many other diary passages expressing his doubt in his abilities as a lecturer and his desire to improve. I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, he had a stammer. Of course he didn't like lecturing in front of a group, but his doubts don't appear to have anything to do with his stammer. He doubts his own ability to teach. To be fair, apparently there was an issue at the time with Christchurch admitting students who had next to no mathematical background or acumen. So it couldn't have been very easy teaching such a lot. 
When Lewis Carroll retired from lecturing in 1881, he noted, again in his diary, that at his very first, specifically Euclid, lecture 25 years earlier, 9 out of 12 students showed up, and for his very last Euclid lecture, 2 out of 9 showed up. Ugh, what a send-off. This is kind of mean, but I'm going to read you some quotes from his former students, because honestly, they're pretty funny. These are also from Lewis Carroll, a biography. I asked one of his former pupils if Carroll's lectures were bad. He said they were dull as ditch water. I asked another if he was a poor tutor. He said that he and others once signed a round robin to the head of the college, asking to be transferred to other hands. One fancy pants named Sir Herbert Maxwell, 7th Baronet of Monreath, reminisced about the lean, dark-haired person and the singularly dry and perfunctory manner in which he imparted instruction to us, never betraying the slightest interest in matters that were of deep concern to us. But they're not all bad. One former pupil said, I always hated mathematics at school, but when I went up to Oxford I learnt from Mr. Dodson to look upon my mathematics as the most delightful of all my studies. His lectures were never dry. Okay, so we finally got a fairly positive one at the end there. And there are many individual accounts from girls, that's probably the key word, girls, who are absolutely enthralled by the clever way in which he taught logic to them one-on-one. -on -one. So again, it would appear tutoring was where his talents were, not lecturing, and especially tutoring girls as he found boys to be gross and rude and generally unpleasant. Now when Beatrice says, it may be interesting to some who do not know Mr. Carroll's poetical charade to read the accompanying verses, I did not stop to read those verses because I thought it would interrupt our flow. I'm going to read them for you now. Charade in this case means a word represented in riddling verse. It's a riddle. It does not mean the pantomime parlor game we all know and probably dislike. Try and guess what the dickens Lewis Carroll is talking about. I will tell you right now there is no way I could have guessed the answer, personally. I think it's kind of impossible. The charade begins with a preface. Five pounds will be given to anyone who succeeds in writing an original poetical charade, introducing the line, my first is followed by a bird, but making no use of the answer to this charade. Signed, Lewis Carroll, April 8, 1878. All right, and here we go. Try to guess. My first is singular at best. More plural is my second. My third is far the pluralist. So plural, plural, I protest. It scarcely can be reckoned. My first is followed by a bird. My second by believers. In magic art, my simple third follows too often hopes absurd and plausible deceivers. My first to get it wisdom tries, a failure melancholy. My second men revered as wise. My third from heights of wisdom flies to depths of frantic folly. My first is aging day by day. My second's age is ended. My third enjoys an age, they say, that never seems to fade away, though centuries extended. My whole? I need a poet's pen to paint her myriad phases. The monarch and the slave of men, a mountain summit and a den of dark and deadly mazes. A flashing light, a fleeting shade, beginning, end, and middle, of all that human art hath made, or wit devised, go seek her aid, if you would read my riddle. 
Okay, who knows what the answer is? Anyone? Anyone? Give up? You'll be happy to know that unlike why is a raven like a writing desk, there is an actual answer to this charade. It is imagination. So, the first he keeps referring to is I. The second is magi, M-A-G-I. He's talking specifically about the three wise men with the use of magi, I guess. And the third is nation, I-magination. And I'll pause now so you can all rewind and see if it makes sense to you now. If any of you guessed that correctly, I will eat my oversized hat. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was a pretty good time, right? Despite being a reading of an obituary. Part two of this episode will be released within a week. I can say that with confidence because I'm almost finished editing it. If some of you are wondering why episodes of Alice's Everywhere have become more sporadic as of late, I don't want you to worry. I'm not in failing health or worse, lazy. And I really don't like to let the real world intrude upon our little wonderland here. You've certainly never heard me talk about politics or anything dreadful like that. But I will tell you, before, when I started this podcast, I was working my actual real-world job 25 to 30 hours a week, and now I am working 40 to 50 hours a week. And it turns out it's really hard to turn out a podcast regularly, especially one that involves as much research as Alice is Everywhere, when you have 15 to 25 fewer hours of spare time to work with each week. And that is all I will say about that. My goal is to still do two episodes a month. I just can't promise when those episodes will occur within said month. And hey, if you miss me, say hi on Facebook or Instagram or Tumblr or Twitter. I also love emails from listeners at heather at aliceseverywhere.com or just revisit some of our greatest hits on the Alice's Everywhere blog. If not, talk soon.